We're going to open up the Bible to Titus. Please turn to the book of Titus, and um, particularly Titus chapter 2. It's on page 1,738 in the Brown Bibles. When Tim Chaddock was here, he kicked us off in the book of Titus on the first section. We've so far just finished chapter 1. And today my aim is to work through the entirety of chapter 2. Now, just to remind ourselves, Paul had planted a church on the island of Crete. And... um, Crete in the Mediterranean, Um, he'd been there for a certain amount of time, but he'd left basically before the church had become fully established. He'd left sort of in a a premature time in a way, but he left a guy there called Titus to look after the church. And now he writes to Titus with some more, probably reminders, he probably already said this stuff to him, but he was writing to him with instructions on what Titus needed to do to get that church on a solid footing to be an effective church on that island. And uh, so he writes to him, and, and, and we get the privilege of overhearing what he said to Titus, his protege and friend. Um, and I, I find that it's just such a wonderful book for us because it's, it's so many parallels with where we're at as a church. Probably a similar age certainly a similar stage where we don't yet have elders, but we're working towards that, much as we see was going on here in Crete. And so it has massive relevance to us. And also, just by the nature of it being one of the shortest letters Paul wrote, you can see how it's just his massive wisdom condensed into just two pages. And so some of the very very, um, most important essential things that churches need to be aware of and need to prioritize if they want to be solid and on a good foundation. So every word is just dripping with wisdom now. My preference usually is to work through books much slower than this, but we're doing it rather rapidly. So we're going to work through the entirety of chapter 2 today. And I want you to pay attention because this is just so powerful. The theme of the second chapter is entirely about godliness. And I want us to think about three things, really why we need to be godly. Um, secondly is sort of what godliness looks like and the third thing is how God makes us godly and we're going to, rather than read it up front we're just going to work our way through it and we're going to begin with one verse at the beginning just as we start, Titus 2 but as for you, he's talking to Titus but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine now here's the first big idea that we need to take on board it's that godliness is the most important thing to pursue in life Godliness is the most important thing for us to pursue in life. If Paul, think of it this way, Paul were to come and visit our church, or maybe if we just had the privilege of a personal letter written to us, what would he focus on? I think we're pretty confident that he would focus on, you know, something to do with the teaching, the ideas, the theology, the doctrine. And if he did so, then we want to pay attention to that, right? I mean, this guy, by all accounts, was a genius, He was steeped in the scriptures. He knew them inside out. He understood mysteries that no one had understood before him about how the scriptures tied together and were weaved together in the conclusion of Jesus Christ. And the more you read his letters, the more you are baffled and amazed at the revelation, the understanding he had of the gospel. So if he were here, I would give my house to have the opportunity to sit and listen to him my wife might have a problem with that, but I, you know, I would love the opportunity to listen to his teaching, have him instruct us, and he'd have every right to teach us. The guy was a complete freak of nature. But he wouldn't only be interested in teaching us you know, theory, theology, knowledge, doctrine. He wouldn't just be interested in that stuff. Paul would be 
profoundly and urgently interested in your lives. In the questions of how to live. Because he was no kind of ivory tower academic. He didn't teach in a university. He didn't sit in a study smoking a pipe and turning the pages of his books. Though he read a lot, he also was out and about with people. He spent most of his life on the road or engaging with people in conversation and interested in the nitty-gritty details of their lives. Bringing all of that knowledge to bear on what it looks like to live a godly life in all the various contexts in which we live. That was Paul. So if he was here... He kind of surveyed the congregation, find out what kind of things we do, who we are. He'd start wanting to apply everything about his teaching to your context, what it means to be a godly student or a godly lawyer or a godly banker or a godly um, restaurateur or whatever it is you guys do. That's how Paul would think. And I want us to just wrestle then with this first question. Why, why is it that we, this is his focus and why is it that we need to pursue godliness above everything? I'll give you three answers to that. The first is this. The godliness doesn't just happen. Holiness, transformation in your life to being like Christ doesn't just happen in a kind of passive automatic way. And the reason for that is that there are powerful currents and tides that are constantly pulling us away from the image of Christ. The Bible talks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. If we were to put it in modern language, you think of it like this, that there are the currents of of culture, You know, just the assumptions that we imbibe about what is the right way to live because of the world that we sit in. And as currents move, you watch opinions on issues of ethics and morality move constantly. I mean, I'm amazed at how quickly views of various issues, especially around sexuality, have moved in the last five to ten years. And it's not like anyone's sort of deliberately chosen to change their mind. It's just that we're swept along with the tides of a changing culture. Now, that ought to make you stop and question how authoritative culture is. If it changes that easily, then why do you think your culture is right? It isn't, of course. It can't be. All cultures clash and conflict and change and shift and move. We ought to learn to question the input of the world around us. But that's one thing, the world. The other is your flesh. In other words, your desires. We're all very uniquely wired and we have different proclivities and desires and things which pull us in different directions. The temptations you face on a day-to-day basis might well be very different from the ones I face. But one thing we can be sure of is that every one of you battles with temptation day after day after day. Sometimes in intense seasons or intense moments. And this would pull you away from Christ-likeness if it were not for Christ's power. The world, the flesh, and the last thing is the devil. The Bible is very realistic about the fact that there are unseen forces around us speaking to us, tempting us, insinuating, accusing, offering, pulling. Now, all I'm trying to help you to see is that because of these powerful forces, godliness doesn't just sort of, you know, just trip into godliness. You have to, you have to run after it. You have to know what it is and then run after it, which is why Paul starts like this. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with godliness. Because he knows that if Titus lets his hands off the wheel, that church is going to veer off into all kinds of errors and ditches. So he's got to keep telling them, what does godliness look like for us in our context? And the same is true for us, friends. It's why we gather week after week, because we are so forgetful 
and because of the power of the currents that would pull us away from Christ. Teach what accords with godliness. That's the first thing, is that godliness doesn't just happen. Another reason why we have to pursue it vigorously, passionately, is that the Bible tells us that it's really dangerous to settle for mere knowledge. This is one of the themes that comes across powerfully in both Old and New Testaments. That the more you know, the more God expects of you. The more you know about Him, the more you know about Jesus, the more He expects of you in terms of the change in your life. And when there's a break somewhere, a disjunction between what you know and the life that you're living, the Bible says that you have become a hypocrite. If you know certain things or speak certain things, but you don't live it, then the Bible says that you've become a hypocrite. And it goes further and tells us it's a very dangerous place to be. It's very dangerous because of those whom God has given much, much will be expected. That The more knowledge and revelation, understanding of God that you have, the fewer excuses we have, in a sense. So there is this, this, this danger we have to be aware of, not to fall into a kind of hypocrisy in our faith. Speaking about Jesus on Sunday this way, singing to him this way, and in the week living a life that contradicts that, maybe in the private moments or even in public. And this is why Paul keeps saying in the letter, he said it in the first verse of the letter, in verse 1 he says, he talks about the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. In other words, your knowledge and your godliness should go together. And then he says it again in this verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, teach a lifestyle which matches the doctrine. And we ought to be very wary of ever splitting off your knowledge from your lifestyle. It's a dangerous place to be. And here's my third reason why we need to pursue this with vigor and passion. Because the most important issue for Paul is not us. We're not holy just for ourselves. The most important issue that's at stake in your life and lifestyle is Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I I believe sincerely and wholeheartedly that living a holy life is the most fulfilling, joy-giving way to live. I'm not saying that you'll be happy all of the time. I'm not saying that you won't suffer. But I am saying this, that if you run headlong after sin, you will soon enough crash and find that it is dissatisfying and that it brings you back always thirsting for more and never satisfying, like you're drinking salt water. So don't get me wrong. I really believe that living a godly, holy life is absolutely the most fulfilling way to live. And any time that you've walked in a season of grace where you felt like God is changing you and causing you to grow in Christ-likeness, you know that there's been an accompanying joy deep in your heart. Thank you, God, that you are changing me by your grace. But here's the thing. The reason why we run after godliness is not just for ourselves, not just that we'll experience that joy, as important as that is. The reason is because it's all for Jesus. A couple of times in this chapter, as we'll come to see, I'll show you actually. He, he shows us that it, it's all about Christ. He says in verse 5, he's talking to the young women, and he says that he gives them instructions. He says, That the word of God may not be reviled. He puts it negatively there. He says, The reason why I want these women to live godly lives is so that the word of God won't be reviled, so that people won't look at them and despise Christianity. In other words, that Christ's name will come into disrepute when our lives don't match the message that we speak. 
But he puts it positively later on when he's talking to the slaves. And he talks, gives them instructions and says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, so that their lives would be a kind of decoration around the message which they proclaim. For Paul, the greatest, most important issue for us, and I want you to understand this for yourself personally, the reason why you need to run after godliness above everything else is that the glory of your Savior Jesus is always at stake in the way you live. I want us to work on through the letter and come to our second big idea. If godliness is the most important thing to pursue in life, we also need to understand this, that it looks different in different places and different contexts, different people, different lives. Because as we're about to read on, what we'll see is that Paul addresses different groups in the church. He talks to the old people first. Then he talks to the young people. Then he talks to Titus himself. And then last of all, he talks to the slaves. And he addresses all these different people with slightly different instructions. There's themes that run through it all. But he gives them different instructions. And that tells me something really important about Godliness. It tells me that whilst the gospel is a kind of one-size-fits-all message, I don't care whether you're you know, a Saudi Arabian prince or whether you're a street dweller in the darkest parts of Calcutta. It, it, it really doesn't matter where you're from or your background. The gospel that Christ died on a cross to save you from your sins and to make you clean before a Holy Father, that message is the same for absolutely everyone across the world, and everyone needs to hear it. But, how the gospel works its way into your life and context varies infinitely as, as much as there are different people on the planet in different contexts in which we live. It's why we have to sometimes do the hard work of understanding, okay, if God saved me, What does it now look like for me to live a godly life in my specific context as a mum? Or as a a medical trainee? Or as a teacher? Or as a student? As a daughter or a son or a father or a mother or as a friend? As someone who has lots of money or someone who has very little money? As someone who is very intelligent or someone who is maybe more practical. Whatever your makeup, your context, your opportunities, godliness, godliness looks different for each one of us, depending on our context. And so we need to kind of work through this with that understanding. And let's get into verse 2 now. First of all, he talks to the old men and the old women. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands, and so on. I love the fact that Paul addresses the old people first in the church. I love it because it cuts against the priorities of our age and our culture, doesn't it? I don't think there's ever been a more youth-obsessed culture in the history of the world and on the face of the planet than the modern Western world. We're an anomaly as societies and cultures go. The fact that we are so obsessed with youth. We see it in all our role models and celebrities. They have to be young. We have to look young. We have to feel young. We want to act young. 
And age is something to be avoided at all costs and dismissed and pushed out of our minds. And we try and forget about it, deny it, live in denial of it. It's a really weird and and unique thing, actually. I mean, we just spent time with relatives in Southeast Asia, and it's completely the opposite. Age is revered. Older people are respected and listened to and obeyed, even. You know, it doesn't matter if you're 50. If you've got an older sibling who's in their 70s, you're going to do what they say or else. It's bizarre. But I think we need a little bit more of that, Joshua. <laughs> when Paul starts by talking then to the old people, he has in mind something of the beauty, the stability, the maturity of what it is to grow up for years in Christ-likeness and how these people ought to be aspiring to being examples to others. And the image that came, comes to my mind when I think about you know, older Christians is that of Psalm 1, where, where the psalmist speaks about the righteous as being like a tree planted by streams of living water, bearing its fruit in its season. As we grow up to be older Christians, we ought to understand that It's not the diminishment of our powers. I know that age is associated with weakness in just about every other way. But when it comes to spirituality, age should be associated with greater power and strength and vigor. I wonder if you're a person who who dreads growing old. Friend, I I would want you to completely reverse your perspective on it and understand that it's an exciting thing to grow older in Christ. To recognize your seat of authority, your position of respect. This is why, you know, when he talks to the old men, he, he, he kind of s- summarizes godliness in the way he speaks to them. All the major Christian virtues are, 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 are compacted there into one verse when he talks to the old men. And when he talks to the wi- old women, he says, likewise. In other words, they should have all of that. And then he says that they should be reverent. And the, it literally means like a priestess. What a beautiful image to think of. What it means to grow up as an older woman is that you are growing to become like a priestess in the household of God. And in fact, the older women are so considered to be so mature in their faith or to aspire to such maturity that they can then be mentors and teachers to other people, younger women in the church. Growing old is a wholly positive thing in in the Bible. And... uh, a retirement mentality is something that we should shun as Christians. I know you guys are like miles away from that. But it's better you set your trajectory now. Some of you are even now, you know, starting to pay into your pension funds. Maybe some one or two of you are dreaming of what you'll do when you get there. How depressing. <laughs> In the Bible, there's no such thing. That's why he says to the old women, he doesn't want them to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. Because what, what happens if you just view your life as missionless and directionless and you just wander around doing nothing, well, you start becoming a gossip and a slanderer and you start just drinking wine and just sort of lazing around all day. And he says, I I don't want them to have that retirement mentality. He says, I want them to get to work. There's a job to be done and while you have life and breath in your body, give yourself to it. And there is never a more important time than to decide that than when you're young, as most of you are. Set the trajectory now of your life that you are not going to, you're not working, working, working to one day switch off and check out. You're working and working that you will one day become like a priest or a priestess in the household of God and give yourself to the instruction and teaching of others. And he talks to the young women and the, and the young men. He goes on. 
He says, train, from verse 4, to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, I want to quickly just deal with these in reverse. First, what he says to the young men, to be self-controlled. seems a little bit unfair that they only get one instruction but in there is a whole world of relevance to any of us who are young and are men. Here's what John Stott says about it. He says, Paul is thinking of the control of temper. You give in to bouts of rage and anger. And tongue. Do you lose control of what you say easily? Your passions run away with your, your speech. Of ambition. Surely this is one of the greatest vices of young men today is that we not only think ambition is acceptable, but we praise ambition as though it were something to be, that, that makes you a healthy, rounded person. Actually, the Bible is wholly, wholly critical of ambition. Anything other than a desire to glorify Christ. It's one of the most dangerous things in your life is your ambitions. It can be. Self-controlled and ambition and avarice your desires, your appetites. And he says, especially of bodily appetites. Eating and other pleasures of of the body. And Stott goes on and says, including sexual urges so that Christian young men remain committed to the unalterable Christian standard of chastity before marriage and fidelity or faithfulness after it. Let me ask you guys, would you say that the defining characteristic of your life and your walk with God is that you have self-control. Where is it lacking? How does God want you to change? What do you need to repent of today? I'm absolutely certain that for every one of us in the room, you're instantly identifying areas in your life where you need to change and grow. Now, what of these things that he says to the young women? Because, um, you know, at first glance, it looks deeply sexist. It seems to justify everything that people dislike about Paul's approach to women. Because he talks about uh, training them to love their husbands and work at home and be submissive and so on. I would just want to say this, that I think we're wrong to understand what he's saying here is a prohibitive thing. I don't think he's saying you can only do this, you can only do that, you can only be there. I think rather, Paul's just speaking very realistically into the context that was true at the time and is often true in most places around most of the world today. That most women who are not, who are not in their parental home are married and have kids and look after their own kids at home. So it would be really kind of unfair of him to come ignore 50% of the church and not speak into their situation. He's not speaking prohibitively. I think he's speaking very positively about what the Bible puts on this amazingly dignified call, the calling. I would put it as strongly as that, what it means to be a wife and a mother. The reason why we have to labor this today is because everything in our society is diminishing those things as a calling. I think there are a few more countercultural things that I can say than to say, that being a wife and a mother is a dignified calling. Everything around us is screaming that you must aspire to other, others more than that. And that if that's all you ever are or do, that is not enough. That's a wasted life. 
I find that highly insulting. I find it insulting to the real situation of, as I said, most women on the planet today, vast majority who are in that context, who need to understand the amazing dignity of this calling. I also find it insulting from a theological point of view because what are we called to do right from the beginning of Genesis? He says, to fill the world and to multiply and to have dominion over the planet. And part of that is, happens in the very small, intimate context of the family and what it means to be a mum and a wife. I don't think Paul is speaking prohibitively as though that's all you must aspire to. I mean, for one thing, Paul himself gladly took support from rich businesswomen. You can read about it in the book of Acts. He never had a bad thing to say about them or, or their gift to him and, and how they supported him in his ministry. But he didn't see them as better. He didn't see them as more achieving or as, as, as more powerful than the women at home with their kids, running a household, doing it well, honoring their husbands, supporting them in their husband's calling. And I think as Christians, we not, shouldn't be embarrassed about this stuff. We should praise it. We should dignify it. We should raise it up. Now, if, if you're a, a woman who's married or wants to get married or has kids or wants to have kids, and, you know, if this is something you, you're going to have to wrestle with one day, like what place that has in your life, what priority it has in your life. And I would just want to add this final comment here, that to obey this kind of stuff and all the sacrifices that come as a result of this lifestyle, it takes an insane level of faith. To lay down ambitions that you could have otherwise pursued in order to be a better wife and mother takes an incredible amount of faith in in God that God's pleased with that, that he wants that, he, he loves it. Do you believe that God will reward you in eternity for obeying him in this and doing it well? Uh, even if it means achieving less in the world's eyes. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that this is absolutely all that all you women are supposed to do. You, I think you've heard me by now. That's not what I'm saying. But I know some of you are choosing it now, and some of you will choose it in the future, and everything around you in, in society will tell you that that is not enough. And you can have it all. Which is just one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard, as though you can you know, pursue your career to the max and just pass off everything else in the home to someone else. Your kid's going to be raised by someone else. Someone's got to do that work. Why is that an undignified thing for a mum to do? Do you believe God will give you joy in it? I hope so. Then he talks to Titus. He says, verse 7, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Hear that word model, to be a model of good works. Not like Zoolander male model, but an example of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. All I want to say about Titus here, he's the, he's the leader, the, the guy who's leading the church, and all I want to say about him is that Paul reveals that his understanding of leadership is that most of what you achieve through leadership is through imitation. That we as humans are imitative by nature. You think about how you learn as a child. Most of what you learn, you learn through imitation. You imbibe through 
just sitting in a context, watching your parents, watching your friends, watching TV, whatever it is you do, and imitating and growing in the context so that even subconsciously. And leaders are people who need to recognize that people are watching them all the time. This is why he says, show yourself a model of good works. Now, there are two kind of implications for us. One is to be deeply conscious of the people who we imitate, because we do it without thinking. It matters who your heroes are in the faith, who it is you look up to, who it is you're seeking to be like, who it is you spend time with, whose books you read, who you watch, all these things, because all of it's shaping and molding you. But it's also relevant to you from this perspective. Who are you modeling to? If Paul said to Titus, show yourself a model of good works, who are you an example to? And what would they copy if they were to copy you in your attitudes? in your commitments, in your generosity, in the way you love others, in the way you serve? Are you someone to be imitated? It's something that we all ought to aspire to in Christ. And finally, he speaks to the slaves. He says, bond servants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters. Wow, we, we have to pause and think, how... How can he speak like that to an institution like slavery? And obviously part of the answer is that slavery was a profoundly different thing in that context to what we think of slavery um, when we think of all the African slaves that were shipped over to the United States. It was a very different kind of thing. But also this was, again, this was the real context. This is what people in the church were slaves and they had nothing, there was nothing they could do about it. So then he, he's more interested, not in them aspiring to freedom, though he says elsewhere in his letters they should take it if they can get it. He's more interested in how they represent Christ in that context, because wherever you are, you have an opportunity to, to represent Christ. And so he says, to be submissive to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, which means sort of stealing things of very little value. So you go into the larder and find a piece of beef and just have a bite, you know, when the master's not said you can have any, that kind of thing, whatever it was. Not pilfering, you know, not stealing paper clips from the paper clip drawer at work or whatever it is you do. But showing all good faith so that in everything, and here's the key, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This word adorn was a word that had to do with, it's like related to our word cosmetics. It had to do with the, the kind of, the way we, we present things. And it was used particularly of how jewels were, were presented, how they were adorned. My mom had an engagement ring uh, when she, it was given to her when my dad proposed many decades ago. And, uh, and the, it, it became loose. Some of the stones were loose in it. So she had to take it to a jeweler to get reset. And the guy made such a hash job of the thing. It was like a blob of metal with a few stones poked in the top. And so she never really wanted to wear it after that. In fact, she later replaced it. But the idea that Paul's getting across to us is that if you find yourself in a context of working, your highest priority should be, how do I represent Christ in my job? When I say your highest priority, I mean that you have all kinds of agendas at play when you go to the office in the morning. I think about the desire to impress people. And Paul says, that's, that's really not, shouldn't be your highest priority, or to be a people pleaser. 
the desire to get ahead in the office and to do well and to, to ascend the ranks. Maybe that's useful, but it shouldn't be your highest priority. Or the just, I mean, the idol of productivity these days. Man, we live in a culture that just idolizes productivity as though that were the gold standard of what we should aspire to in life, to be efficient machines. And Paul doesn't, I mean, yeah, he wants them to work hard. He says it elsewhere in his letters, you know, we should work hard and so on. But that's not the most important thing. He's saying to you, to you all, because in a sense we're all bond servants to someone or something, whether it's your mortgage or your contract at work or whatever it is. He's saying to us that the highest priority is you get yourself ready to go to work in the morning should be how you represent Jesus in your context. What does it look like to be a Christ-honoring student in my course? What does it look like to be a Christ-honoring actor? You have to wrestle with all the issues that surround that, of appropriateness and inappropriateness, and all the things that go into that. What does it look like to be a Christ-honoring city worker? You have to do the hard work of thinking about those things. But friend, when you approach your work every day, Is it your most important question? How am I adorning the doctrine? How am I displaying Jesus in the way I study, in the way I work, in the way I relate, in the way I manage, in the way I instruct and lead, in the way I I answer emails and all those kinds of things? Now, Paul lastly brings Titus around to the most important question of all, which is how does Jesus do this in us? You know, we've not touched on everything. There's millions of other things we could talk about when, it talks, when we think about what it means to pursue godliness. But I know that always when we talk about holiness and godliness, the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, putting his finger on areas in your conscience that you need to grow and change it. And so we, we must ask the last question, how is it that God transforms our lives and I think that's a question that's, that's relevant to those of you who are not Christians, because I'm sure that if you're not a Christian and you're here, part of the reason you're here is because you're dissatisfied with the way your life is. And that part of the answer must be that you must change. And therefore, it's of intense interest to know how does Jesus change you. But I also want to speak to you who are Christians, because I know from personal experience and from one of the many conversations I have with people that Man, the frustration that we feel sometimes with ourselves. You know, I am liable to be more angry with myself than anyone else in the world. How can I change? How can you change? And it's so wonderful and comforting and beautiful to me that when Paul brings this to his focus here at the end of this chapter... He doesn't tell Titus something new, something Titus hadn't heard before. He just goes back to the same old basic things about Jesus. And he's talking to Titus here. I mean, Titus had been educated by Paul, trained by Paul, and yet Paul still wants to get back to the basics. And it's like, if, imagine if you're at university, and, and you know this happened to me a couple of times at college, where a guest lecturer is coming, and that guest lecturer might be famous in the field, and they're something you're excited to hear from. 
And as they enter the classroom, they greet the students, and he turns around to the whiteboard, gets out a black pen, and writes on, on the whiteboard three letters, A, B, C. Turns around to the class, says, repeat after me, A, B, C. Now, get out your pens and copy these actions, A, B, C. And you'd be scratching your head and thinking, I'm, I'm sure I, pay, I paid my fees for more than this. But it's so wonderfully you know, comforting, actually, when you think about it. In the Christian life, there's not some great mystery that you have to attain to. Some secret knowledge, some expertise that only a few people have. The power of God to change your life always comes back to the core essential things of the message we believe, which are so dynamically and 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 completely contradictory to the world in which we live. And I mean the gospel of Jesus Christ. He tells Titus just these stuff again. I want to break it down for you into three words. Grace, hope, and faith. First of all, grace. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Before we just unpack that, what is, what is grace? Grace is the scandal of Christianity. It's a message that God gives the undeserving all of his lavish riches. It's the message that he takes dirty lives and gives them eternal life, even though they've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Grace is him pouring out his love upon you because he desires you, even though you know in the depth of your heart that you are undesirable. Grace is God saying yes to you again and again, even when you've turned your back on him and run away from him a thousand times. Grace is you failing, but always finding acceptance in the Father's embrace. Grace is the knowledge that he will accept you into his eternal dwellings through Jesus, because Christ died for you on the cross. Grace is all of those things and so much more. And grace is the bafflement of the world, because I was reading a book by Nabil Qureshi on holiday. He's a man who was converted from Islam to Christianity through a profound journey of discovery. And his book is called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Absolutely amazing book. But he says how when he was raised in a Muslim home, he was taught that what Christians believe is utter rubbish because they believe that God just forgives us. And that that's just license to do whatever you want. In Islam, no, you live under fear. You need to live a right life because otherwise you're doomed for eternity. But in Christianity, God forgives you. And he was taught that that's the reason why the West is the way it is. He lived in America and he's taught that that's why America is the way it is. With all the sort of negative connotations of Muslim eyes looking at Hollywood and celebrity and all that kind of stuff. Now, in this context, we've got to work hard to understand, well, how is it that grace, as Paul puts it here, look at verse 12, grace trains us. What a bizarre way of putting it, because everything in us, all of our common sense says, no, law trains us. Law, a list of to-dos, what you must do in order to be right with God, that's what trains you for godliness. And we, this is what we apply in all of life. You think about if you were to join the army, imagine your commanding officer was to shout at you, get down and give me 20. 
You have to get on the floor and start doing press-ups. And By the looks of some of you, you probably only managed to squeeze out one. You push out one press-up. Imagine if that commanding officer then goes to you and says, well done. I'm sure it'll be better tomorrow. They don't. They probably punch you in the head, stamp on you, and then tell you to give them 40 more. Because everything about our, our understanding of ourselves and of the world is that we need laws. We need strict laws in order to be changed. And suddenly, the gospel comes along and completely contradicts and cuts across that and says that it's in God's lavishness to you that you're changed, that you're trained for godliness. How on earth does that happen? I think the answer is basically that law just doesn't work. When you give people law in order to try and change them and rules... It does one of two things. For one thing, it seems to provoke all kinds of wrong desires in you. Like the sign on the grass, please keep off the grass. Well, I wonder what that grass feels like. I mean, when I came in this morning, Gerald, who owns a theater, told us that the kids don't, shouldn't come on here because uh, the set might be broken. And Seth, I know, is looking at this thing and he's like, I want to I touch that grass. That grass looks awesome. And the more I tell him, don't touch the grass, I'm pretty certain the more likely he is to get on here and start ripping the set apart. You see, the Lord does that in our hearts, doesn't it? it? It kind of provokes desires that we didn't even have before we were told not to do something. That's one of the great weaknesses of law. Another great weakness of it is that laws kind of send us into spirals of failure. So many people who've checked out in life, who've become alcoholics or drug addicts, or uh, are, have done so because they've lived under a weight of their own guilt and condemnation. You try harder, you trip up and fail, and then all of the guilt slams down upon you and crushes you further into the dust. And I know that you've all experienced that. It's, it's core to our nature, isn't it? The more guilty we feel, the more likely we are to fail next time. And the more that we find ourselves spiraling into darkness and bad habits and all kinds of bondage and slavery. And then Jesus comes along and says, I've died for you to free you. To wipe away your past, your present and all your future sins. And to say that you're accepted regardless. And suddenly all of the weakness of the law is broken and crumbled the way the law provoked us to sin, grace comes along and, and it just, we just start forgetting about the rules and we, we're wanting to run after Jesus. And the way that we were caught in spirals of doing wrong are, are, are totally just cut off at the root because we don't have to feel the weight of condemnation every time we fail. We just, as Paul puts it, we forget what lies behind and press on to what's ahead, to the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I think when Paul said that in Philippians, he's talking about his own failures. He knew he'd failed abysmally in life. But he says, I just, I just forget it all. And I keep running after Jesus. He loves me. He's accepted me. And this is how grace trains us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live these self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Grace, here's my second word, hope. He goes on and says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I would put it as strongly as this. Just as grace is unique to the Christian faith, 
Future hope is also unique to our faith. What are the alternatives out there? If you think there's no God, you're not sure. The future is full of deep uncertainty. Not only the future in life, but the future beyond life and when you die. Is it oblivion? Is it some unknown torment? Is it paradise? I have no idea. I think life without God cannot be future-oriented because the future is full of things you cannot control. But even if you have some kind of faith, most of the faiths in the world, yeah, they have some kind of future opportunity, but it's not promise. All eyes on me and away from sea. Hello. <laughs> we, um, when we think about what it means to be part of a religion that offers you something in the future, but you don't know if you're ever going to get it. The future is full of deep anxiety and uncertainty. You know, if you believe in reincarnation, you might reincarnate as a rat or a mosquito. If you believe in a future judgment, as most faiths have some kind of aspect of this, you know, you never know if you've done enough good to outweigh the bad. And so your future is always tinted by anxiety and uncertainty and doubt and fear. But Christianity isn't like that. For Christians, the future is good. The future is Jesus. The future is the certainty of him coming and redeeming and transforming the world and of our knowing him for eternity. It says, this is why we live waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you think about your life, is it full of fear and anxiety? Friend, hope, hope in Christ should pull you through. Let me bring you to our last word, faith. He rounds it off and says about Jesus that in verse 14 that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It is easy to lose heart in the Christian life when you feel like you failed in the same way more times than you can count. When you disappoint yourself on a daily basis. But let me ask you this question. Whose job is it to change your life? I know that we're actors in that story. We have a role. But when Paul brings all of this to a focus and lands it here on these last couple of verses, what he tells us is something very different to the answer you. He tells us it's Jesus' job. Jesus is the one who's redeemed you and he's the one who is now purifying for himself a people. And how I want you to understand this is this, that our confidence that we're going to grow as Christians and grow in godliness and grow in holiness is not in our own determined desire to do so. Our confidence is a faith-based confidence, faith-based confidence on the certainty of Christ's promise to us. You are his project, and he wants you to be changed by his power. He's at work in your life. So don't lose heart. Think back to the amazing amazing things that God's already done in your life to this point. He's brought you this far. Think of all the joy he's brought, and the transformation, 
and then know with absolute certainty that he is going to finish what he started. It came out in Warren's prayer earlier. It's there in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is both the author, in other words, he started it, and the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. And if there's one thing we can be sure about Jesus, it's this, that he always finishes what he starts. You are his project. He has his eyes focused upon you. So friend, if you find yourself frustrated in a dark place with how weak you feel you are, know this, Jesus is at work in your life and you're not going to be the same tomorrow and in a year and in 10 years. And then finally, when we see him face to face, the Bible says we will be like him. He's going to change us. How do you need to change and grow, friends? What is it that God's calling you to run after? I want to urge you to keep coming back to this central truth of the grace and the hope and the faith that we stand upon. This is why Paul closes after Titus. He says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What is it that I seek to do week by week when we come together as Grace London? It's basically this verse. The more I tell you this stuff, the more I know that the word of God is going to work in your life to change you. Praise God. Thank him for it.